I'm Jim White. Welcome to It's Friday, bringing you news of the best of arts, culture and entertainment to brighten lockdown life. You can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google and leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk. This week, as the BBC digs into its archives to keep us entertained, we will be bagging a lift from Peter Kay back once again in his car share. I'm going, getting out. Getting out where? Of your car, of your life. Why? Because I love you, that's why. And we'll be meeting Anne Cleves, the prolific author of the books that have inspired one of the great television performances from Brenda Blethyn as the oddball Northumbrian detective, Vera. Give us CPR, Mom. We're too late. And talking of oddballs, not to be confused with 80s popster Chesney Hawks, we'll be considering the latest from American country warbler, Kenny Chesney. Under the flag of a no-shoes nation Speaking our gospel, seeking our truth Brothers and all Before that, though, this weekend, the nation should have been getting its glitter shorts out of the cupboard, decking the halls in union flag bunting and preparing for the campus show on earth, the Eurovision Song Contest. Sadly for many, the virus has put paid to this year's edition that was due to go in Rotterdam. A pity, as the annual parade of tone-deaf floor emptiers has been delighting audiences for generations with its regular doses of unintended comedy, like this magnificent entry from Ukraine. Devotees in their thousands have tuned in to watch over the years, guided through by wonderful commentary from first Terry Wogan. Spain is next. Song called Bloody Mary. That reminds me, I haven't touched a drop yet so far. Only a matter of time. Then latterly, Graham Norton. It's like the gay wedding I'll never have. With me to try and understand why on earth this broadcasting dinosaur is still such a popular event are the Daily Mail's music critic Adrian Thrills, the Mail's television expert Claudia Connell, and Brian Viner, the Daily Mail's cinema critic. Claudia, there seems to be lots of stuff coming in to uh, fill in the gap left by the Eurovision. Uh, will, will the addicts be able to get a fix this Saturday? Um, yeah, there's a whole weekend worth of it. I mean, it's, it's it's the first time in 65 years that we've not had the Eurovision Song Contest, which I was really excited about because I hate it. But um, <laughs> um, unfortunately, there's hours and hours of programmes on BBC One and BBC Two, including a programme where you, you get to hear all 41 songs. Um, it's just that there won't be a winner declared. Uh, so we can hear all 41 songs. I don't think that's the whole point of the Eurovision Song Contest, is it, Brian? I mean, it's not the song, is it, that people tune in for? Well, I certainly don't. Actually, I don't tune in at all. I'm, a little, I'm kind of on Claudia's side there. I go right back to the late 60s and early 70s. That was the heyday of Eurovision. I watched it then. In fact, my, my first and most vivid memory of life is Cliff Richard singing Congratulations. Congratulations. On the car radio in June 1968, and we were on our way back from, uh, I was with my parents on our way back from a holiday in Devon, uh, driving back up to the north of England, and 
Cliff was interrupted by a news flash to say that Robert Kennedy had been assassinated in Los Angeles. And I remember, I remember it vividly because we stopped the car, my father stopped the car and both my parents cried, which to me as a six-year-old was absolutely extraordinary. So uh, I have always kind of conflated the memory of Cliff singing congratulations with, uh, with Robert Kennedy being um, assassinated. I'm enough. confused there, Brian. Were they crying because Cliff's song had been interrupted on the radio? <laughs> I've never thought of it like that, Jim, but you might be right. I think, um, yes, no, we were, I was talking about this with my, with my family last night, actually, and uh, they, they were kind of astonished that, you know, adults could cry at something like that so far away. But uh, I think in the context of the time and, and Martin Luther King had recently been killed and so on and so forth, they were just, it was so shocking that uh, we pulled into a lay and yeah, they have a little weep. Uh, Adrian, I, I feel almost embarrassed asking a music critic about Eurovision. I mean, have there been any songs that have ever rested in your memory quite as much as they have in Bryant's? Well, I think it has, you know, it, it was certainly in the, in the 70s and 80s. It was a kind of fabric of, of Saturday night TV viewing at that at that. Point of, uh, that point of the year it's always been more of a tv event than a music one i think as terry wogan once said you know, the worse it is the more fun it is and you know there have been some real horrors um, i did a bit of research last night and uh, there was a german entry from 1979 called genghis khan that saluted the um or the virtues of a warmongering emperor <laughs> I mean, there was, of course, that very famously the UK entry in 2003, Gemini, which actually achieved the grand total of null point. <laughs> kind of an all-time high stroke low but there have been obviously there's, there's the old classic Abba's Waterloo you couldn't really argue with that There's been one or two others. I think the, you're struggling, Adrian. I can tell. Claudia, <laughs> it's a television event, and here's the television critic telling us that she never tunes in. Why not? Well, I, I used to watch it. It's like Brian. I used to watch it sort of back in the early days when there were only sort of you know a handful of countries that took part. But it, it's got 41 competing countries now. I mean, they do whittle it down to I think about 30 usually. But it's it's you know it's just hours and hours of, of terrible music. And it's I, I actually one of the first records I ever bought was Brotherhood of Man. Save your kisses for me, which won. Save your kisses for me. Save all your kisses for me. I think it won in 76. I would have been about eight or nine. Don't cry, honey, don't cry. Gonna walk out the door, but I'll soon be back for more. Kisses for me. Save all your kisses for me. So I, I did 
did buy that one, but I, I, I couldn't even name a, a British entry, I think probably for at least the last 10 years. It's got no musical merit. It's got no television merit, you say, but it's got a huge following, Brian. So who is watching? Well, all I can tell you for uh, for sure is that it has a it has actually quite a big gay following. It's a it's quite kind of iconic. I had a gay friend and colleague some years ago who used to have a fantastic Eurovision party where he would hand out to everybody going their country. So it was like a lottery, and you'd you'd, you'd be given a country, and you had to go along in the national costume of that country with some alcohol related to that country, which was very difficult in the case of kind of Iceland or something like that. <laughs> But we, we managed and it was riotous and we had so much fun and a lot of it and a lot of his gay friends were there and it was so much fun. But um, but now I don't know, is it for kids? Is it for kids? Do they watch? I don't know. I, I haven't a bit like Claudia. I haven't seen it for years and years and years. Well, Claudia, the great mainstay of the television used to be Terry Wogan getting slightly tipsier and tipsier and tipsier as he gave his sardonic commentaries. But the dance macabre begin. Oh look, it's the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Who knows what hellish future lies ahead? Well actually I do because I've seen the rehearsals. Graham Norton's taken over. Is he as good? Yeah, he, he is good. He, he's just as funny, actually. And it's the, the thing is that because it's, it's Graham Norton and he's, he's Irish, whenever I, so if I ever catch a few minutes now, I just immediately think of that episode of um, Father Ted. I don't know if you, if you remember where, um, because it became a bit of a running joke in the 90s that I think Ireland won the Eurovision Song Contest about four or five times in the 90s. And if you win, you have to host it. The country has to host it the next year. And it costs a lot of money. So the, the, the sort of story in Father Ted was that they were looking for the worst possible entry in order to, for Ireland to not win. And so Father Ted and Father Dougal did a song called My Lovely Horse. Which was absolutely awful, but I'd say it's still a lot better than some of the songs we have today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Adrian, it, would, it was due to be in uh, Rotterdam this year. Does it give us any flavour of musical times? I mean, if you look back at uh, Eurovision, does it reflect what's going on in music wider? Or is it, is it is its own thing? Well, I think it doesn't. It does tend to exist in a parallel universe. You know, in, in the, even in the sixties and seventies, when when the UK was, you know, with you know, the country that gave the world the Beatles, the Stones, and then even you know, more recently Adele and Amy Winehouse were were churning out this utter rubbish uh, every every year. I mean, as we touched on it earlier, there's one or two songs. Um, for this year, there's a really good entry. Obviously, it won't win. I think it probably would have won, which is the, with the was the Icelandic one. The Nordics seem to do it better than most and um, it was a song called Think About Things by Daddy Freya. Cause I don't understand you know. Oh you are yet to learn how to speak When we first met I will never forget Cause even though I didn't know you yet We were bound together then and forever And I could never let you go What do you think about things? Believe it. I will always be there so you can tell. 
actually a really good pop song, a real banger, but it, it's the exception rather than the rule, I have to say. Okay, well, we're not going to be listening. We're not going to be getting in there. We're not even going to find out that Britain's got null point. But that seemed to be the latter thing, didn't it, Claudia? Everyone became conspiracy theorists that the whole of Europe was against Britain. Every entry never got a vote. That, no, yeah, no one was in our corner. Well, that, that was the, the sort of theme that Terry Wogan always followed just because you had all the old Eastern Bloc countries that all voted for each other and sometimes, you know, Ireland might feel a bit sorry for us and, and bung us a few points, but sort of, I think in, in recent years, it just seemed like, no, nobody liked us. Claudia, Brian, Adrian, null point for Eurovision. We're not going to miss it at all, it seems. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> There is barely a week when an adaptation of one of her thrillers is not on television. But before Anne Cleves kept schedulers fully stocked in brilliant detective tales, she spent 20 years writing novels that hardly set tills ringing. Then her books about the Northern Isles were turned into a Shetland TV series before her wonderful offbeat gumshoe Vera Stanhope became a household institution. Now she has a new book out, The Long Call, which is set neither in Scotland nor does it feature Vera. So uh, the first thing to ask you, Anne, is uh, what's the new book all about? The Long Call is the start of a new series um, and it's set in North Devon, which is where I grew up, introduces a new detective who's called Matthew Venn. We're so used to Vera Stanhope. We know all about her shambolic kind of character that she is. Is he similar? No, he's rather buttoned up. He grew up in a small evangelical community, lost his faith and his way of, I guess, finding family and community again was to join the police service. But he still has that slightly Puritan attitude to the world. And he's gay, so... That's why reconciliation with the family and the community is quite tricky for him. Now, you said you're a bit nervous about that. Uh, is this simply because we love Vera so much, you're worried that we might not love him? I suppose so. And I think that other writers of, who have very popular characters find it difficult to start a new series and they don't always take their, their readers with them. But my readers have just been wonderful and they've stuck with him and seem to enjoy reading him too. He's such a very different character, as you said, uh, from Vera. Do you ever get them mixed up in your head? Do you, does he suddenly become a little bit shambolic? Not at all, no. I, I write them separately. So I've I finished a new Vera, which will be out in September, and I'm in the middle of writing a new Matthew Venn. And that's lovely because it means I'm in my head. I'm back in Devon where I was a teenager and it's sunshine and beaches. So quite, quite a lovely place to be. So you're back in Devon. This is a familiar territory. Do you have to go down there and kind of recharge your Devon batteries when you're writing? I go down before I start a book and I've still got my best friend who I was at school with since I was 11 still lives in Barnstable. So I go and stay with her and we have a good catch up and yeah, just she's great. She chauffeurs me around the countryside and I find places to murder people. And <laughs> There's always a new place to murder somebody, is there? Yeah, very scenic places for murder in North Devon. Again, it's a bit like writing about Northumberland because it's right on the edge. It's, it's one of those 
insubstantial places and places that all sorts of different communities bumping against each other because people think of it as, as a great holiday destination but some of the seaside towns are really quite down at heel a bit like some of the northeastern seaside towns so you do get uh, people who drift in to work for the season in the big hotels and then don't have any reason to, to go away and so there is some drug use and quite a lot of rural poverty but then alongside that you have the surfing and the posh kids from the private schools who come down to celebrate the end of A-levels and and the locals and lots of arty types as well and I'm particularly interested I suppose in that human geography and different communities bumping into each other. With both uh, Vera and Shetland there seems to be an Ancleaves product on the TV almost all the time whenever we tune in. <laughs> Wasn't always like that for you though Anne, I mean there was a there was a long no, no. night before the overnight success. Did you ever think no, I... you weren't going to make it? I didn't. I wasn't really bothered though. I just enjoyed telling the stories. So yeah, I was twenty. I was published for twenty years before I had any real commercial success, and I was just very lucky that the publisher stuck with me. Obviously, paid me very small advances, so I wasn't costing them very much. I suppose I'm very grateful for libraries and for indie booksellers because they were the people who who promoted the books and hand sold them, and reading groups seemed to like them. And eventually, with Raven Black, the first of the, the Shetland books, that was a real career changer for me. You said that uh, this, this changed everything. Does it change the way you write when you get success? Does it make you more confident? No, I don't think so. I think because I've been doing it for such a long time, I have a way of working, which is that I don't plot in advance. I don't plan. Because I was making so little money, it had to be fun. And I couldn't see that it would be fun at all if I knew what, how the ending was going to be. That hardly any point in writing the book so I still write in exactly the same way I have a I need to understand the world I need to have a voice and a tone and a I guess a kind of morality around the book before I start and then I just write the first chapter I need to know what's going to happen next so I have to write the next chapter and I keep going until I more or less have worked out what's happening a lot of people are now introduced to you via the TV and with Vera Blender Bletin so inhabits the character. Was, oh, she exactly yeah. everything, was she everything you imagined Vera to be when you first saw her? Uh, Brenda scrubs up beautifully. I mean, she's a very elegant woman. So if you meet her out of out of character, she's not a bit like my Vera. But yeah, she absolutely inhabits them. And she's a great actor because her way of working, because she worked with the director, Mike Lee, is to create, she needs to know about the character that she's portraying. So I, we always joke that she knows Vera's birthday and I don't. So she knows those tiny details. And she goes back to what she calls the source material, which is the books. So she does read the novels before they're, they're adapted. And, and when you saw her, from the moment you saw her, did it slightly change the way you then wrote about her? Did it change your image of who she might be? Not at first, but now, I mean, after a 10 series with a possible 11th, if, if we come out of lockdown in time for, to film it, she's become my Vera. I mean, I think of her as, as our Vera really now. So, yes, I will write dialogue hearing Brenda's voice in my head my fear is is bigger and not 
so beautiful, but, but you know, her skin's bad, she's heavy, she's she's not absolutely like Brenda Blethyn, but Brenda has absolutely become my Vera. Is Mark with you? No, I sent him back to the office. What? You're not alone, are you? Yeah. You had a few bits and pieces to do. Well, listen, first off, Bethany, don't go back to the house. There's a weapon there. Right. Okay. Can you keep him away from the child? Can you do that? Can I have my keys back? Bethany? Bethany? A lot of uh, thrillers are, are set in very claustrophobic places. Claustrophobia is a, a really important part of the kind of infrastructure of thrillers. Uh, lockdown couldn't be more claustrophobic. Do you expect to see a whole raft of thrillers about lockdown or, or are we going to be so fed up with it we'd rather not read about it afterwards? I'm not sure, really. I always find, because I write about Shetland and about Northumberland and then about North Devon, which have big skies, wide horizons. And I love that contrast, that contradiction between you can see as far as it's possible to see, but there are secrets that are hidden. And I, I do enjoy playing with that sort of idea. So I think I'll still be writing about uh, big spaces and big skies, even when other people are focusing on the, the claustrophobic. You're escaping from lockdown into your, into your work. I certainly, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And that's why I'm, that, I'm it doesn't feel very different being here uh, from, except I'm having to do fewer uh, book tours and fewer gigs and I can, focus on the storytelling it's been great talking to you thank you so much Anne. and uh, wh when is the next book out the new vera book which is called the darkest evening is out at the beginning of september oh I look forward to that thank you so much for speaking to us thank you now it's time for hits and misses where the daily mail's writers turn their expert eye to the week's new releases and tell us what we should be meeting for a picnic in the park and what, frankly, should be given the widest of social distancing. Uh, first up, the Daily Mail's film man, Brian Viner. Still lots being streamed, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Yeah, plenty. There's a film called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which is a bit of a mouthful. I had to slow down saying that, which is streaming on, uh, you can find it through Amazon Prime. It's on Voodoo. It's... Uh, it's not that difficult to find. It's a very interesting film. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and was very, very rapturously received. And it's the story, it's by a woman, written and directed by a woman called Eliza Hitman, American. And it's the story of a young woman, 17, a girl, who finds herself unexpectedly and very unwelcomely pregnant. And she lives in Pennsylvania, a small town, rural Pennsylvania. She can't get an abortion. She desperately wants to terminate the pregnancy. So she has to go with her very supportive young cousin, played by Talia Ryder, who, by the way, I think is a talent to watch. She'll be in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story later this year. But anyway, the two girls go to New York City, which is the only place where she can get the procedure she wants. Let's listen to a clip. I want to make sure that you're safe. La, 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 la. I know this is hard. Ask you some questions. 
It can be really personal. Just answer either never, rarely, sometimes, or always. This is a very pertinent political issue in America, isn't it? It seems to split the country. It is. And I think some states are much more liberal than others. I suppose the further south, maybe the further west you go until you get to California, the more hard line they are about it. So it, it's, it's a, a film with an agenda, undoubtedly. You know, it's, it's, it's very well done. It's almost filmed in a sort of documentary style. So there are long silences. These two girls who obviously know each other very well, but they, they don't talk much to each other. There's not a huge amount of dialogue in the, in the film. Um, it's quite a hard watch, I have to say, but it's, it's very well done. I, I watched it with my wife. She, she likes dialogue in her movies. She's called her old-fashioned. So she found it a little bit difficult to, to put up with those long silences. Also, from my point of view, and, also, and having watched a film called The Assistant, which I, I talked about on on the show a few weeks ago, which is sort of set in a Harvey Weinstein sort of type office in New York, uh, where men are very much the, the villains of the piece. And so they are again in this film. You know, there's, there's not a man in it who is anything other than either a bully or a predator or a creep. So that's a bit hard to take if you're one of the males, <laughs> male of the species, Jim. But it's, um, it's, it's, a, very interesting, it's a very interesting film. And um, the lead character, who's called Autumn, she's, I think, the only person who's actually name-checked in the entire movie. And she is played by a newcomer called Sydney Flanagan, who I gather is a musician, but not an actress. Uh, this is her acting debut, and she's extremely good. So there are lots of good reasons to, to see it. As I say, it's a hard watch. I don't know, wherever you are, wherever you stand on the abortion rights issue might determine whether you want to watch it or not. Um, but I would say it is definitely one of this week's hits. What else have you seen then, Brian? There's a documentary, Jim, called The Atom, A Love Affair, and it is a story about atomic energy. It's made by a British filmmaker called Vicky Leslie. I think it's her first film or first feature-length film documentary. And you would think that the story of atomic energy from the end of the Second World War might be a little bit turgid and stolid and and so it is in some ways but she manages to kind of enliven it in various ways lots of kind of little film clips and she's got some assembled some very interesting talking heads and it really it sort of follows how the way in which atomic energy was first of all kind of feared at the end of the war because it was responsible for the, the terrible bombing of Hiroshima and so on. And then in 1953, President Eisenhower gave this famous speech to the UN in which he, he lauded it and said it was going to kind of save mankind. And so it goes in these kind of peaks and troughs, the, the way that the world has had, and, and of course later Chernobyl and, and Three Mile Island and uh, the, the Japanese nuclear reactor uh, disaster so it's gone kind of up and down it's, it's quite an interesting film let's listen to a clip and then i'll tell you i'll tell you a little bit more about it now i'd like to bring you a different kind of story in its own way it's just as dramatic as anything a writer could dream of it has to do with a new power source this power source is the atom the atom a thing of wonder the building block of the universe you know her? Not very well. I wish I did. But with the power to destroy it, too. Of good or of evil? Who will decide which it shall be? 
The challenge was irresistible. Is this a sense of deja vu? But weren't we talking about atomic energy and Marie Curie only recently? Has it suddenly become filmically sexy as a subject? Uh, You're right, Jim. Yes, there was a a very good biopic uh, with Rosamund Pike of Marie Curie quite recently. Uh, And that sort of followed, although in a feature film way, that, that sort of followed the same theme, which is, you know, atomic energy can be very good for mankind as a source of energy and all the rest of it. Uh, it can also, of course, be catastrophic for mankind. So, yeah, this, this, this documentary sort of explores the, the same ideas. The two problems with it are, one, that I think they've chosen the wrong narrator. The narrator is Lily Cole, who you might be familiar with. She's a, a model and an actress. She's 32 years old. She, I'm sure, is extremely bright and all the rest of it, but she hasn't got the right voice. You, you, you need a voice with kind of gravitas for a subject like this. And she talks, she sounds to me a little bit like a sixth former, kind of reading out an A-level paper, and that's a little bit off-putting. The other thing is that the, it's called The Atom, A Love Affair, and this idea of the world either being in love, you know, it, it, the, the world's relationship with, with the atom and with atomic energy following the the sort of trajectory of a love affair, being in love and then out of love, uh, is all very well, but I think it's overdone. And so the, the, this metaphor is stretched. And you all know this, Jim, as a, as a sports writer, you know, you can get hold of a metaphor and not want to <laughs> leave it go. And, you, you know, and it's stretched and stretched and stretched until finally it snaps well before the end of the documentary. So you're kind of getting a little bit fed up of honeymoons and, you know, and, and falling in love and all that. So, so for you, does it work as a movie? Is it a hit or a miss? Oh, well, I, I think, I mean, with those uh, kind of conditions and caveats, I think it's actually, it's, it's interesting, it's enlightening, it's entertaining in its way, and so I would say it's a hit. Now I'm joined by the male's music critic, Adrian Thrills. Adrian, before we start on the week's new releases, this week also saw the departure of one of the greats of rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, Little Richard, what can you say? I mean, he really was one of the, one of the innovators, both, both in terms of you know, the music, the brilliant songs he wrote, and, and you know, his image, his flamboyant image, he kind of toyed with, with gender roles. I mean, he was, uh, if Elvis was the king of rock, I think, uh, I think Little Richard once famously said, he was the king of the blues and the queen too. <laughs> someone else called him the quasar of rock. I mean, he, he really was a giant. And, and of course, you know, came up with that immortal phrase one of the greatest lines in rock and roll history, a wop bop a loo bop a lop bam boom, which, which he said was, I think he once said it was mimicking the sound of a drum solo. He, he was certainly one of, one of the brightest stars. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, Paul McCartney, when he was on Desert Island Discs um, a couple of years ago, he, he picked Tutti Frutti as one of his eight songs. And you can see Little Rich's influence just stretches kind of way beyond the 50s to, uh, to kind of, you know, you know relatively you know, modern stars. I mean, Prince took a hell of a lot from... Uh, 
Madonna, from Little Richard, but you know, the Beatles and the Stones in particular, you know, massive influence. I think Keith Richard played with him once and said it was the greatest moment of his life. A huge, huge loss. Uh, and, and what new is coming to try and tread in Little Richard's footsteps? We've got uh, a new album from, from other giants of country music, Kenny Chesney. It's interesting the way that um, a lot of pop and dance and R&B acts, have, they've postponed albums, but Nashville just seems to have, it just rocked on kind of completely unaffected by the lockdown. All the big country albums are just, they're coming thick and fast. And uh, Kenny Chesney, he, he's one of country's good old boys. I think if you uh, like your Stetsons and your pickup trucks and uh, going to be kind of riding through England's country lanes in your Cadillacs with your cut-off blue jeans, he's, he's the man for you. And uh, he broke through a good few years ago. His, one of his first big hits was She Thinks My Tractor's Sexy. So, <laughs> um, kind of give you an idea of, of where he's coming from. And uh, he, he's got a new album called Here and Now. It's already number one in the States. I think it's his ninth American number one, which puts him right up there with, with kind of some of the, you know, the, the biggest names in music. It's called Here and Now. I think it's pretty tried and trusted. It's, it's Kenny just doing what he does best. It's, it's hard not to be kind of swept up with his almost puppyish enthusiasm. And he kind of, he's a man for the good times. And uh, I think we're going to hear a track now called We Do. flag of a no-shoes nation speaking our gospel seeking our truth brothers in arms and sisters and cowboys that's a salute to his his fans he calls them the no-shoes nation and uh, he's obviously he's a man who has an aversion to uh, to formal attire he had a, he had a hit called no shoes no shirt no problem and i mean it's it, it's good it's good time country music it doesn't have most much ambition and it does stick very much to to the, the kind of tried and trusted and for me I, I just like something with just a little bit more ambition and uh, I mean it, it's it's good but it, it's really from in my books probably just a miss and what else have you got for us this week uh, Adrian and I've got another album, again, it comes out of Nashville by a singer called Jason Isbell. He, and he's one of America's his best singer-songwriters. He, he's really put together a really impressive body of work. He used to be in a band called The Drive-By Truckers, and he made six albums with them, I think, before turning solo. Um, he's been most, um, most famous recently. He wrote the crucial track in the the Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga remake of A Star Is Born. He wrote this brilliant song called Maybe It's Time, which which Bradley Cooper said actually gave them the template for the film in his portrayal of a kind of fading drug-addled country singer. Um, and, uh, and Jason Isbell, he's, he's got his, a new record out now called Reunions. Uh, I think we're going to hear a track called Be Afraid. I don't think you even recognize the loss of control. I don't think you even see it in yourself. See, every one of us is counting by so we didn't roll. And the loser is the last to ask for help. Be afraid, very afraid. Do it Yes, that Star Is Born track was certainly a winner and it sounds as though he's back on that kind of form. 
Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant album. He's he's a, he's a songwriter who always looks for the fresh angles. He he's got a lovely song about his four year old daughter, but rather than write about her as she is now, he looks forward to her wedding day and kind of thinking how he'll feel. But it's a great kind of daddy daughter song and. Uh, there's songs about his childhood, songs about relationships, and it's a really beautifully balanced record. He's got a great band behind him called The 400 Unit, and you know, I think it's a record that really does repay two or three listens. There's some, some great songs, and I think he's, you know, he's, he's right up there with America's best songwriters. So a hit for you, I would say. That one's definitely a hit. And finally, Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television writer. Claudia, I know everybody's watching Netflix and iPlayer, uh, but whenever I turn to the schedules, there doesn't seem to be anything new on it at all. I mean, what have you got in store for us this week? I've got one sort of new programme we're going to talk about, but um, it, that's um, a, a BBC on, t- on BBC Two and Horizon special uh, next Thursday, and it's called uh, "What's the Matter with Tony Slattery?" Um, I, I, I don't know if people remember Tony Slattery. He was he was part of the Cambridge Footlights sort of set at the same time as Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And there was a period in the sort of eighties and nineties when he was just on TV all the time. He was very very good looking, very charismatic, very talented. And while his sort of peers just went from strength to strength, he just sort of disappeared. And it turned out that he was battling a drug dependency, which he's since conquered. But he now has sort of real crippling problems with mental health issues and alcoholism. And, and this program, it's an hour documentary, and it's about his, his battle to sort himself out and to try and get a, a proper diagnosis for his problems. And I, I, I think we have a clip here to listen to. I rented a stupid, huge luxury warehouse overlooking the Thames, but I was... So nutty, I threw loads of stuff into the Thames and used to stay up for four days and then the paranoia. I thought everything was bugged and I became obsessed with electrical equipment and chucked it all into Thames and there was one particular time when the river police came by with a megaphone and they shouted, Tony, we'd like, this is true, Tony, we'd like you in whose line is it anyway, but please stop chucking things into the Thames. Why? Two seconds. I'd have to try and talk him down. He kept imagining that uh, he was being spied on, that people were breaking into the apartment, and people were destroying things. It became apparent that he was becoming a danger to himself and needed, needed help. My grip on time and how it passes, that became very fuzzy. I do remember uh, Tony Slattery. As you say, he was uh, ubiquitous uh, mm. back in the 90s. Is he now working again? Is he performing again? Or, is, or are the difficulties stopping him doing that? He's, he's doing, he's trying to do a, um, a live show where he talks about, it's sort of a comedy show, but he also talks about his mental health issues as well. Uh, but I think he desperately wants to get back on TV. And he's, I, I, it, I got the impression from the, t- the program that he's, he's broke. Um, he lives with his long-term partner, Mark, who's been a real sort of terrific support for him. And actually, in sh- the show, you see that Stephen Fry is also trying to support him as well because he's had his own issues with mental health. Um, and I, yeah, I just I found it really, really sort of quite sad and really quite moving. And I, 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 he wants to work again, and I, I really hope that he does because you forget even sort of even in the sort of depths of his despair, he's still very, very funny. There's still sort of real flashes of, of, of great wit in the program, and I, I think it will hopefully lead to some work for him. 
And how did this come about, this programme? I mean, if he'd been in despair, how come he suddenly got an hour's worth of TV? Well, I, I think apparently he did a newspaper interview a few years ago where he first revealed sort of where he'd been hiding and, and what his, his problems had been. And off the back of that, he was approached, I think, to make this this documentary and I understand they were in discussions for quite a long time they followed him for many many months and it, it is very serious I mean it's got a bit of a sort of trite title but he does go and meet some leading psychiatrists who try and sort of talk to him about childhood trauma and, and issues from his past so it's there's a sort of a scientific side to it as well worth watching a hit or a miss for you Claudia? yeah I mean saying a hit sort of seems a bit a bit strange considering the subject matter but it is it's a very good program so yeah it, it is a hit and I think people should watch it so that is a bit of new release. Yeah. But am I right that, in saying it. there's just not a lot around? That, there's, there's, there's not next week. There's, so I, I'm going to have to talk about um, a repeat, something that, that's coming back. But it's, you know, it, it, it's good all the same. Peter... Kay's car share um, the BBC from tonight actually are showing the first series um, and they're going to be screening all the episodes and hopefully the, the second series as well it's five years since it first went out so it's, it's worth watching again and if, and if you missed it first time around then, then definitely see it it's, um, Peter Kay plays John, a supermarket manager and he has to take one of his colleagues to and from work Kaylee, and they end up sort of forming a, a friendship and um, there's sort of a bit of uh, chemistry between them as well and I, I think we have a, a clip here. She's looking at? Probably looking at you, like you've been dragged through an edge backwards. Well, thanks very much, Jonathan. Happy Christmas to you too. I love that when it first came out. Really, really well worth getting. A few weeks ago, they did an audio-only version of, of Car Share that was played on, on BBC One. It was only about 10 minutes long, and it was just done as a special thing for people in, in lockdown. I'm, I'm not sure that it quite worked. It was like sort of listening to the radio, but with your TV set on. So it, it wasn't quite the same as... as as, as, as the TV version, um, and actually, you, if you if you watch it, you have to listen to the. The key thing is you have to listen to the radio station that's playing. They they listen to Forever FM, which is this cheesy radio station, and and you have to listen to some of the adverts that are playing because they're very very funny. And another another sort of tip that you might have missed the first time around is that you also need to look at the billboards that they pass on their way to work, advertising some of the local companies because again, it's very very funny. Ah, I didn't notice that first time around. Great tip, Claudia. Thank yeah. you very much. I know where you're going on this. Hit or miss? Yeah, it was a hit the first time around, and so it's, it, it's still a hit. Well, now you know what's going to be filling up your memory space and what you can cheerfully take down to the reopened Council Recycling Centre. My thanks to Brian, Claudia and Adrian. Now let's find out what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. And there's no one better to ask than Jackie Stephen, the male's own celebrity celebrity watcher. Uh, what's happening over there, Jackie? Not much, as usual. Although New York has, has flattened the curve. It's the one state that is doing pretty well because we've been wearing masks and it, things are now starting to open a little bit. Although it's just been announced that Broadway is completely shut for the whole of the summer, past Labor Day in September. And things don't look as if they're going to happen really now until next year. So Sarah Jessica Parker's 
show and Matthew Broderick, they win a show called Plaza Suite at the Hudson Theatre. It was supposed to begin previews this year, but now they're going to do it next year in the spring. And that one is coming along and they'll be doing it. But very sadly, not such a good case for Martin McDonagh's Hangmen. They were supposed to be doing that in April on Broadway and it had a great cast. And now that everyone's on furloughed. Yeah, I mean, Broadway is such an important part of New York's tourism business as well. So everything is going to be put on hold, isn't it? Well, it's a big problem for Theatreland because of all the restaurants. You know, around Broadway, all the restaurants rely on theatre audiences right through the day as well when they have the matinees on Wednesdays and Saturdays for the matinees. Those restaurants are absolutely packed with people coming in from out of, ta- out of town. Uh, and all those bars and restaurants now are going to be empty. It's really, really sad. And you look at poor actors. They've lost two jobs. They've lost their acting job and they've lost their part-time job in a bar. And nothing like that looks as like if it's going to be open anytime soon. People are still doing takeaway drinks and food. But... That's about it. So you haven't got a roadmap like we've got. You haven't got dates down the line where certain things are likely to open. It's it's just locked down for the near future, is it? Uh, in New York City, it is, yes. Uh, in New York State, uh, some things are starting to open next week. But in New York City, everything's on lockdown because it's still the epicenter of the epicenter. We've been given a date now. First of all, we've given May the 16th. Now we've been given June the 6th for the next time that they assess things. We won't be going anywhere until June the 6th. So it's uh, it's getting tougher. It is getting tougher. Uh, is TV looking as though it's running out of stuff or are there still new shows coming up that you can enjoy? TV's not running out of anything, to be honest. They've got so much stuff in the bag and they make shows well in advance. So you've still got about 22 episodes of new productions and so many stars now are doing stuff online. There's a show called uh, Celebrity Watch or something. So they've got groups of celebrities at home watching TV and that's become compulsive viewing. You had Sharon Osborne and her daughter watching a program where uh, Dr. Pimple, where she squeezes zits. And it was horrible last week because there was the biggest cyst you've ever seen. And they sliced into it. And poor Kelly Osborne was practically throwing up on camera. It was so disgusting. I was nearly throwing up as well. Celebrity goggle box going on stateside. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that's happening is a lot of celebrities are online telling people how to live. I just mentioned Sharon just now. She was saying online that women don't like being fat. She was praising Adele's huge weight loss. And Oprah Winfrey is now jumping on the bandwagon with this because she took her show on the road last year, a health, well, it's a symposium, I suppose, a health show going around. And she interviewed the likes of Michelle Obama talking about how you look after yourself, how to be healthy. Now, remember, Oprah Winfrey was enormous. She claims, I think, to be a size 12. She still looks as if she's eaten me for breakfast. So how she's a size 12, I do not know. (laughs) Me for breakfast with whole milk, can I tell you? And so she's taken her show on the road now. It's going for uh, four weeks. It starts on Saturday. They're 90-minute experiences. They're on Zoom from 11 o'clock our time. And it follows on from her nine-week tour. And she's going to be telling people how to stay well and strong in the pandemic and how to refocus. The only thing I feel about it, it's, it's all very well for these celebrities who are so rich telling people how to live their lives and saying how hard it is. It's not that hard for her. She's in a mansion. 
you know, she's got everything. Her cock is probably still there. It's very easy to stay healthy uh, when you're a celebrity with a ton load of money. Less easy if you're in a really poor, poor part of New York City where you don't have health insurance because these are people who can't work from home. They're people who have to go out. They're in the construction industry and things like that. So they're the ones who are most vulnerable because they can't stay at home. Yeah, and uh, what has been great speaking to you this week, Jackie, without mention of the words Meghan and Harry. Well done. No. Well, I, I think that I'm so bored with them myself now. And now <laughs> that I want to bring that book forward, it's like they never learn. Never, ever learn. It's, it's going to be another disaster for them once that book comes out. It's just ridiculous. I thought you were going to say that I haven't mentioned Andrew Cuomo yet. Well, that's true. You haven't mentioned Andrew Cuomo. How is your relationship with the, with the governor of New York State? I did actually write him a letter singing his praises. And has he replied yet? He hasn't yet. I think he read between the lines and saw it, it was, I'm trying to get into your trousers, dot com. <laughs> Jackie, as always, a pleasure speaking to you. You too. Have a good week. <laughs> and that's it from it's friday we'll be back next week and every week via spotify apple and google and don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk and if you'd like to drop us a line directly we're on it's friday at mailplus.co.uk until next week i'm jim white stay safe Bye.